Well, good morning. How you doing? Doing good. You look good. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at the Upper Room Fellowship. It's good to be hanging out with you today. Uh, we are in week eight of a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes titled Under the Sun. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and flip over to Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, all the scriptures will be up on the, on the big screen behind me. So let me just catch you up a little bit on uh, where we are, because if you weren't here for the series. So Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes, was the king of Israel, had just incredible wealth and power and prestige and popularity, wisdom, incredible resources. And he, throughout his life, he kind of leverages all these things to test where the good life is found on earth. And he tests everything. He pushes the envelope. He pushes the barriers on on everything on the planet Earth that claims of itself, hey, here's the good life. This is, this is where it's found. Right? This is what will fix the emptiness in your soul. This is what you're looking for. This is where satisfaction and fulfillment is. And he, and he tests it all. And his conclusions, looking back, was that all the things under the sun, the things that this world has to offer us, ultimately do not fulfill us. Partying, accomplishments, comfort, sex. He says, none of it's enough. None of it ultimately satisfies. That was kind of the first eight chapters of the book. And then we get to chapters 9 through 12, where Solomon is sitting at the end of his life. He's now kind of Grandpa Solomon. And he starts to describe how to live a good life. Like last week, we talked about Solomon's reminder that to live a good life, you have to remember that this life is finite. right? The death comes for us all. But while we're breathing, we have this opportunity to chase depth and meaning and beauty with our lives. Today we'll be in chapters 10 through 11, and we're just going to kind of go verse by verse. And why is Grandpa Solomon going to continue to tell us what life lived well looks like under the sun? Okay, so starting in chapter 10, Ecclesiastes 10.2, he says, he starts, a wise person's heart goes to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. So right off the bat, I can't believe the Republican Party hasn't grabbed a hold of that one, right? Like, I'm not a political guy, but I can't believe they haven't taken that scripture and put it on their handouts and mailers to just try to convince everybody that Jesus was a Republican. But anyway, there's, there, he's saying there's kind of there's, there's these categories that we fall into here on earth. You've got pretty people, you've got not-so-pretty people, you've got rich people. Poor people, smart people, dumb people. Then you got kind of subcategories between those, right? All of us aren't supermodels, but most of us don't frighten small children. Most of us are kind of in the middle of the mix. And he's saying, listen, let's kind of throw out all the categories. Because it doesn't matter how pretty you are, how rich you are, how smart you are. You can throw all those out because there's only two things that you need to look at in your life and evaluate. There's a right way to walk, which is for the wise. And then there's a wrong way to walk, which is for the fool. Now look at how he defines the fool. Look with me in verse 3. He says, Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. So today, if when you and I get in our cars and we head out of here and we jump on Route 14, if there's just a, a man walking down the middle of the road, you know something's wrong with him. Right? If somebody's skipping down the middle of 680 northbound, something's gone wrong up there. So you're calling the cops, you're calling an ambulance. But something's gone wrong. But let's go deeper. Solomon says, you want to know who a fool is? The fool is the person who pretends that they are indestructible, 
and that they alone stand at the center of the universe. That's the fool. The fool is the one who feels big and in control, despite the fact that the universe screams out that that's not true. So God has wired the universe to communicate to you how just fragile and out of control you are. I've said this before, but anybody, but, but nobody stands at the rim of the Grand Canyon and brags about how much they can bench press. Why? Because they feel, you feel tiny in the presence of such vastness and majesty. Nobody sits on the sand in front of the roar of the Pacific Ocean and feels mighty, except for maybe the fool. And then look at this next line. He says, if a ruler's anger rises against you, do not leave your post. Calmness can lay great offense to rest. So I think this is so great. Solomon goes, here's the deal. They're everywhere. Fools who think they stand at the center of the universe. And Solomon says, sometimes they become rulers. Or maybe to put it in our context, bosses. You ever have a boss who thought they were the center of the universe? Yeah, amen. So he just says, like, calm down, breathe, don't run, don't move from, this, from place to place to place to try to run away from a broken world. No matter where you are, they're going to be there too sometimes. Verses 5 through 7. It says, there is an evil I've seen under the sun, the sort of error that arises from a ruler. So historians and theologians don't really know what Solomon is referencing there when he says that, that he's seen this evil that arose from a ruler. But he goes on. He says, fools are put in many high positions while the rich occupy the low ones. I have seen slaves on horseback while princes go on foot like slaves. So here's what he says. He says, we live in a world where stupidity, folly, and debauchery is exalted and paraded down the middle of the road and put up like an achievement to be pursued. And then when, when what is good and right and real and beautiful and makes a difference, walks on the side of the road and is ignored. So to kind of sum up, Solomon says, there are fools everywhere and foolish things are exalted. So what do we do? How do we then live life? Verses 8 through 10. He'll give us a warning about life and then he just starts to kind of help us. He starts and says, whoever digs a pit may fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. Whoever quarries stones may be injured by them. Whoever splits logs may be endangered by them. If the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, more strength is needed, but skill will bring success. So the alarm clock goes off, and the guy reaches over and turns it off, and he, and he gets up and he puts on his work clothes like he, just, like he has for 20 years, and he drinks his cup of coffee, and he kisses his wife and his children goodbye. And he gets in his truck, and he heads out, and he begins to dig a ditch. He digs ditches for a living. That's what he does. He's dug ditches every day for 20 years, but this day, for whatever reason, in the middle of digging a ditch, he stumbles on a stone, falls into the ditch, and dies. A man wakes up, and just like he has every day for 30 years, and breaks down walls for a living, and he breaks down this wall, except this wall has a snake in it, and it bites him. Solomon says... Life is sometimes hard, and it's unpredictable, and no one controls it, but there are wise ways to do things. And then he uses this great illustration about the guy in the axe. And he says he, he takes his axe, and he doesn't just go out flailing on trees. He sees that his blade is dull, and so he sharpens it. And then he heads outside and begins to cut down trees. And Solomon can be a little bit confusing, but commentators think he's saying this. 
that wise men and women know where they're going and they're working on a plan to get there. They aren't running around trying to get trees cut down with a dull axe. They're thinking and planning beforehand so they will not be wasting time. Like we talked about the Kierkegaard Kierkegaard quote last week, live your life forward, but understand it backward. Know who you want to be so that you will know the path to get there. Do the things that set the trajectory of your life toward what kind of person you want to be. So maybe I can say it this way. Nobody stumbles into godliness. Nobody accidentally has a good marriage. Like it's, it's not enough to want to. If you're not careful, your want-tos are going to give way to I wish I would-haves. Like the next verse, verse 11, says this. If the snake bites before it is charmed, then there is no advantage for the charmer. He says, who cares if there's a snake charmer? And he forgets to blow his horn, and he gets killed. Then you've just got a guy with a flute dead on the ground. What good is a snake charmer if he's not charming a snake? What good is it if you want to be a godly man, you want to be a godly woman, you want to be a godly husband or godly wife or have an active faith, if you want, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, but do nothing to head that way. And I'm not talking about like self-help. I believe in grace and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, but sanctification, spiritual growth, discipleship is a process of God and you. You do your part, and God will do his part. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25, Paul says it this way. He says, don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now, everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. Now, when Paul's talking about athletes having self-control... He's not talking about the guy who plays basketball at the Y once a week, right? Don't go back and like, I know what he's talking about. He's saying at the highest level of athletics, there is a self-discipline that's mind-boggling. Like they literally measure out their food. They have a scale in their kitchen going, this is how many grams of protein I need. This is how many ounces of blueberries I need, right? I don't measure blueberries, right? I'll admit that. I feel good about myself if I'm just eating blueberries. I've never thought... I really overrate on those blueberries. But these guys and girls have it down to a science. And they do it all, and they push their body to the brink for what? To get a wreath that's perishable. And he says, we should have the same consuming self-control and discipline in our lives because we don't pursue what's perishable. But what's imperishable? What's eternal? Look what he says next, verse 26. Paul, this is. So I do not run, run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body. Some of your translations may say, I beat my body and make it my slave. And I bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul says here, in my pursuit of becoming a godly man, I don't run aimlessly. I don't punch the air. I know where I'm going. I know who I want to be. I know where I need to go, and I'm working on a plan, and I'm fighting the enemies of that path. I don't just go to church and join a home group and hope for the best. I don't just run aimlessly. I'm running on purpose. I'm not swinging at the air. I know the enemies of those things that would hinder 
my spiritual growth, and I'm ready to fight him. Right? Dallas Willard said, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. So we, we put effort into our spiritual growth, not to earn approval from God. We've already, we're already approved by God. We put effort into our growth because we want to be closer to him, because we treasure his presence in our lives. We want to know his heart. That's why we put effort into our spiritual growth. In 1 Timothy 4, 7, Paul says, says, train yourself for godliness. It's an interesting way to put that, isn't it? That word train in the Greek is gymnasso. It means to sweat. Sweat yourself to godliness. Train yourself. Right, this January, there's going to be a lot of folks who make New Year's resolutions. And there's going to be a huge influx of people who join gyms. And six weeks later, it's going to be, go back to the same people that were there before. And I think the reason that happens is people go, well, I need to get in better shape. But they really haven't defined that. So they just pay the money and join the gym. And then they go there and they don't really know what to do or how to go about it. And there's no real plan. There's no real way to measure and I honestly believe that the same thing holds true spiritually. Like, I know that for me, I have to spiritually plan. Why? Because I have a tendency to coast. I have a tendency to think that it will take care of itself. And so I have to have a plan. Because if I don't, my whole life will be filled up with want-tos that turn into, I wish I would have. So if I could encourage you in maybe the most practical way possible, I think that one of the best things you can do is to slow down for a bit, whether that's to take a day off by yourself and get away or just go for a long walk and spend some time asking yourself the question, like, who do I want to be? Where am I running? What's the path? What are the enemies of that path? Like, write it down. Here's what kind of Jesus follower I want to be. Here's how I'm going to get there. Here's the kind of parent I want to be. Here's the kind of spouse. Make a spiritual plan. Like, don't run the race aimlessly. Okay, back to Ecclesiastes. Look at the next part, verse 15. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. I find this to be very true. Solomon's saying, a person who doesn't know where they're going, right, what they're trying to be, who they're trying to be, he says they tend to get exhausted by life because they're walking, but they're not really going anywhere. Solomon, again, again is talking about the treadmill that he's been talking about through Ecclesiastes. Kind of running, but not going anywhere. So keep keep this in mind. There are times in marriage where the thing, where it's going to be uphill walk, right? It's going to be hard. But with the end in mind, like my plan, my goal, I want to be sipping coffee on the porch with Katie 30 years from now, rejoicing in all that Jesus did. That's the plan. With the end in mind, difficult days don't overwhelm us because that's where we're going. And he's saying, a person who has no idea where he's going, no idea where he's, who he's trying to become, they have a tendency to get overwhelmed and worn out by nothing because they don't have a greater vision for their life and where they're going. And then look at what else the fool has the tendency to do. Verse 16 says, woe to the land whose king was a servant and whose princes feast in the morning. So that's a wrong time to have a feast, if you don't know. Happy are, oh, happy are you, O oh land, when your king is the son of nobility. He's saying the son of nobility knows he's going to be nobility, so he knows where he's going. 
and whose princes eat at the proper time for strength and not drunkenness. That's such a great line because it once again says, hey, listen, there's a, there's a time to party. There's a time to party that isn't for drunkenness, but that strengthens the soul. And he says, through laziness, the rafters sag because of idle hands, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens the life, gladdens life and money answers everything. So question, is bread really made for laughter? I mean, do you ever just like pull out a dinner roll and just be like, (laughs) bread's not made for laughter, right? That's not what he's referencing. What Solomon's referencing again is dinner. This guy's got a dinner thing. It's like every nine verses, he's like, and do dinner, eat dinner together. He says, work hard and then spend your money wisely. Buy a big dining room table so your friends can come over and eat. Eat your bread and laugh and responsibly drink your wine and laugh at your bad jokes. Have them over. Money will afford this. So the wise person knows where they're going, knows what they want to be, knows what what they've been called to. They surround themselves with people. They're gaining wisdom. They party to bring strength, not drunkenness. They never numb the realities of life. And they have a great dining room table. Let's keep going. He goes on, do not revile the king even in your thoughts or curse the rich in your bedroom because a bird in the sky may carry your words and a bird on the wing may report what you say. Have you ever run your mouth and gotten busted? No? Nobody? Me neither. Uh, I've heard this happens to people, but he says a wise man understands that we live in a sinful, broken world of which he is a part. And here's the part that got me. He says that the wise man, he won't even badmouth people as he lays in bed at night. Does that convict you like it does me? Those little dumb things we say about someone, those little put-downs, they have a way of getting to the person we're talking about, don't they? Almost like a little bird carries them. He says a wise person lays in bed at night and they have some, maybe they have some conflict with, I don't know, maybe say a boss, I don't know. And they go, you know what, I'm not going to badmouth them. I don't battle flesh and blood, but rather spirits and principalities. I pray for them. I pray for their heart and I pray for my heart. Now this last part is our conclusion for this part. He says, Solomon says, If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So this is maybe Solomon's hardest word in this whole thing. It's a tough word. He's saying, quit making excuses and be obedient to what God has asked you. He says, God comes to this woman and asks her to walk through the forest. And the woman looks up and she sees the wind and she says, it's blowing those trees. Maybe one of those trees will fall down and kill me. I think I'll stay here. And God comes to a man and says, plant seeds. And he says, well, here's the deal. There's some thunderstorms up there. It's kind of a waste of time to plant seeds if it's going to rain. And so he does nothing. They heard from the Lord, they had been spoken to, and they make excuses and do nothing. And Solomon says, yeah, the tree could fall on you. 
I mean, nobody knows the ways of God. Right? Some, sometimes the guy who digs ditches every day, maybe today he falls in. Maybe the tree does fall on you. But go. All a person can do is accept the limitations of what God has been, is, is of not being God, and be obedient to what God's revealed to them. So if God says, go through the forest, Psalm says, go through the forest, no matter how hard the wind's blowing. And if he says, plant seeds, plant seeds, even if it's raining. Be obedient. And I think this is, I think this is very personal to Saul. Because he's coming to the end of his life, and he's realizing that he wasted so much time. Things started off good, right? He loved and worshipped the living God, and he cared about him, and he worshipped him, and God shows up and says, like, Solomon, you're the king now. What do you want me to give you? I'll give you anything. What do you want? And so Solomon says, wisdom and discernment, so I can serve my people. Otherwise, I'm pretty sure I'm going to make some really dumb decisions. And God says, okay, I'll give you that. In fact, I'm going to give it all to you. I'm going to give you money, power, wisdom, and it starts off really well. Solomon becomes king. He marries a poor peasant girl that he loves. They wrote a book about it, Song of Songs. Things are going well with them. And then as he grows in power and he grows in wealth, he starts to drift. And he stops obeying God. And he begins to kind of marry all kinds of different wives. And these women begin to kind of lead him to worship other gods so that he starts building temples to other gods. And he drifted. And he chased after fulfillment through approval and status and parties and comfort, control, accomplishments, sex. And all the things he chased after that he thought would give him the good life, that he thought would bring him fulfillment, the thing that just around the next corner would complete his soul, didn't do it. And so Solomon's looking back over his life. He's writing Ecclesiastes and he says, don't drift. Don't let yourself walk away from God. Be obedient. Don't get lackadaisical. Have a plan for your life. Know where you're going. And if you think back to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Wide is the gate. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate. And narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. He's saying the same thing as Solomon. Like, Stay on the path. Don't drift. Stay on the narrow road. Paul says the same thing. He says, let, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. He goes on to say, for this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You hear it? He's saying, like, this isn't some game. Don't drift. Don't walk. Run. Because it's too easy to get to stop or to get tripped up and fall off the track. And so I think this week, maybe we need to just pray a little bit about our history. Just say, God, where, where have I said no to you? Where have, what have you revealed to me that I haven't been obedient to. And I think we're very intelligent people here. I think most of us go, darn it, I, I got to deal with that. I've been trying to run from that forever. I know exactly where I've said no. We just got no, I'm not going to do it, God. And so some of us are going to have to repent. And then we need to pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
We have the courage and the power to run with endurance the race God has set before us. Amen? Amen. So the prayer team will be up here uh, in the front after I pray. If you'd like some prayer, right, run in the race with endurance. We'll take the help of the Holy Spirit. So today would be a great day to get some prayer for that. And if you'd like prayer for anything else, come get prayed for as well. All right? The ministry team wants to come up. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today. God, I just pray that you would help us. I just pray that this would not just be another one of those things we just kind of hear and think about. But Lord, I just want us to wrestle with this one, Father. I know that there's just these, uh, there's these a thousand little things in my own life where I've just said, no, God, I'm not going to do that one. And I've picked my obediences to you, God. So forgive me. And I think there are some in this room who have their, probably the same testimony to God. So reveal to us those areas we refuse to walk in obedience. Reveal to us those areas in which we have said no. And reveal to us those hindrances in our lives that weigh us down and make it so difficult for us to follow. And Lord, help us to have a vision for our lives. Give us a plan. Help us to run the race. It's for your great name we pray. Everybody say, Amen.